This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. From NPR Music, it's all songs considered. I'm Robin Hilton. Thirty years ago this month, Nirvana released what would be its third and final album, In Utero. It featured some of the band's most loved work, including the songs All Apologies, Heart Shaped Box, and Penny Royalty. To mark its three-decade milestone, Geffen and Universal Music is releasing a massive box set with more than 50 previously unreleased recordings, including two full concerts from the In Utero tour, B-sides, and a whole bunch more. That's due out later this year. Back when Nirvana celebrated the 20th anniversary of In Utero, All Songs Considered's Bob Boylan and I sat down with the band's two surviving members, drummer Dave Grohl and bassist Chris Novoselic, to talk about the album and how it came together. They shared their memories of what it was like to be in the studio back then, all the antics and experiments and songwriting, the incredible energy of it all, and what it was like to work with their hero, producer Steve Albini. To mark the 30th anniversary of In Utero, we are revisiting that conversation this week on All Songs Considered. We begin with Dave Grohl, who talked about what he was listening to when they first started working on the album. Well, let's see. In 1993, I was listening to a lot of The Jesus Lizard, which was a great band that Steve Albini also produced. I think I was also listening to that last Pixies album. Or there was maybe the first Frank Black solo record had come out around that time, too. Maybe if you pick something off the Jesus Lizard, since it's a Steve Albini production, maybe we can talk about something in the sound that attracted you. I got to say, Steve Albini was really famous for his signature sound. The sound that he got on his albums, it was no accident. It was There's a science to what he does, and it was usually mostly recognized in the drums. So if you listen to the Breeders' first album, Pod, or you listen to the Pixies' Surfer Rosa, or you listen to the Jesus Lizard album, Liar, um, it sounds like a band in a room, but there's some sort of sonic element to it that nobody else could get than Steve Albini. He was the only guy that could get that drum sound. Let's listen to some and, of it, because we'll hear some on the in, in utero. Let's listen to some of the uh, Jesus Lizard and hear the drums, and then we can talk about the specifics and how we how he did it and stuff. There's a song called Boilermaker, which is a really, I think is the first song off of the Liar album, maybe. All right, let's play some of that. I'm going to pl- again just repeat. I'll pull your mics out at this mm-hmm. moment for, for just a moment. You really do feel, I mean, especially coming off of drum sounds from the 1980s that were monstrously compressed and in your face, you really do get a sense of a big, open, spacious thing uh, going on on drums here. And we'll play some of In Utero a little bit here that is, as well. 
Would that be a good characterization of the difference there? Yeah, I think so. You know, I remember when we were making In Utero, one of the things that Steve talked about was trying to record or mix or equalize the sound of a band in a way that seemed natural. So without the vocals seeming disconnected from the music, like I think what he tried to do was present the song to the listener in a way that sounded entirely real, you know, but he would kind of embellish things in a way that made it more powerful. And he's just, you know, he's a brilliant dude. And um, going to make that record with him, I mean, he was like, I remember taking the Breeders' first album, Pod, down to Sound City when we were making the album Nevermind and saying, oh, this is the drum sound. Like, that's the sound we love, that sound. It's a great sound. That was always, I don't know, it was something that we always loved or related to was was Steve Albini recordings. Did you feel disappointed or or uh, when for the drum sound on Nevermind and and no kept... dude, that record sounds great. Okay. Because the sound <laughs> is so very thing. different. But it but it doesn't sound like Steve Albini's sound. I mean that kick drum is there's heavy compression on it. There's it's really a different sound yeah. than the Albini sound. So that's why I asked. Well, you know, it's one of the great things about the luxury of recording in different places with different people is that you get to experience all of those different, their technique or their sound. And recording with Butch is, was a lot different than Steve. You know, with Butch, we would do multiple takes and we would like try to get things to sound. Uh, we would like really craft these things. Whereas with Steve, I swear, we would do one take and he'd hit stop and say, okay, what's next? <laughs> you know, we, had to, we had to prove ourselves... We had to prove ourselves to Steve. So on the first day uh, at the studio, we're all set up and we're ready to go. And like, okay, Steve, we're rolling right. He goes, we're rolling. And so we play the song, Serve the Servants. And, you know, Dave counts us in and just goes, blam, the song starts, okay. And then we play the song. And then, of course, the ending falls apart, and like every song on, on In Utero. And so we finished the song, and so Kurt and Dave and I, we look at each other, and we're like, well, yeah, that felt pretty good. It's like, how was, how was it, Steve? He's like, sounds good. Like, we're, all right, we're going to do another song. So, like, one take. And so that way we, we won Steve over after that. That's fabulous. We should we listen to the, to the top cut, the first cut of In Utero, just uh, get hear those drums that we were talking about and get the feel of uh, what it was like to be in, at Pachyderm Studios in Minnesota in February of uh, 1993. Oh, <laughs> 
It sounds so good. Sounds so good. So to, to so many people who are don't know about recording and don't know about technique, the idea is what what's so I guess the question would be, well, what's so complicated about throwing a band in a room and just recording them? And of course, as you know, it presents all sorts of problems when everybody's in the same room. And that's the untangling that needs to get done to make it so a band can perform together in a room, but to be able to record it so everything doesn't turn to mush, right? Isn't that the the mega problem that I think so. I mean, it depends on what you want to do, but for the noise that we made when we were in a room, isolation and separation was usually a good idea. You know, if you if you put the three of us in a room full of microphones and and hit go, it would just sound like you know, but uh you know, I remember that room, it was such a it was such a beautiful place to record too. Like if you've ever seen pictures of the house or the studio, you know, I'm sure it's a beautiful place to hang out in in the summertime. And unfortunately, we were there in February. It's outside of Minneapolis. It was like sub-zero Arctic temperature. But that room where we recorded the stuff, it was a, it was the room sounded great, and it was a comfortable place to be. And I remember sitting at my drums, and Kurt was to my left, and Chris was to my right, and we had a proper isolation, and we would track live together. So when describe what it means for proper isolation to somebody who doesn't understand what that means. Is it big foam? Is it glass? Well, is it what, what's between you and him? They were probably just like some sort of. Baffles. It was a sliding glass door oh. between you and the bass amp. Right. But I stood on your side of the sliding glass. Yeah, you were because I room. wanted to feel the the kick drum like the in my chest. Power. I wanted to feel the heart, the power. In your mind, soul. Uh, that's it. That was it. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're recording um, multiple instruments in a room with multiple microphones, the sound of the room is bleeding into each microphone. And if, you know, say you have a microphone that's pointed at a snare drum or is pointed at a, at a, at a singer's mouth, you want to try to contain or isolate those specific microphones so that not everything is bleeding into those, if that makes any sense. So, um, but you do want to be in the room with each other so that you can get the vibe of playing with that person, you know? And Steve Albini has these strategies and they're rather sophisticated about where you place the microphone in the room and how you, how you put it in one place. And he doesn't really use any type of like equipment. He calls it synthetic or reverb and this and that because he wants the real thing. And so it's, it's very organic, non-GMO organic, um, <laughs> no uh, pesticides, uh, <laughs> labor, labor-friendly junk food. Right. Now, he, there, was, there was a moment before you got there that, uh, was it the band, Robin? You've got the letter. The box set has all this stuff, and, and I'm going to let Robin. Yeah, let's it. talk about it real quickly. There's a remastered version of the original album. It's been remixed. Uh, Steve Albini remixed it uh, for this edition. Tons of demos, previously unreleased tracks, a disc of live cuts, a DVD, and there really are some amazing liner notes. And it, it inclu includes a five-page letter that uh, Steve Albini wrote you guys uh, before you even got into the studio with him. And I can just read the uh, the opening graph from him. It's a single-typed 
<laughs> five-page letter. He says, I think the very best thing you could do at this point is exactly what you're talking about doing. Bang a record out in a couple of days with high quality but minimal production. No interference from the front office bullet heads. Uh, if that is indeed what you want to do, I would love to be involved. And then he closes by saying, if a record takes more than a week to make, somebody's fucking up. <laughs> so uh, you guys did this, I think, in two weeks, yeah? But we didn't screw up, though. <laughs> we, did it two, we mixed, yeah, mixed. We recorded and mixed in, in two weeks. And we moseyed along, though. But, you know, we also, we were well prepared. I mean, we developed a work ethic. We had a, a great work ethic. We would uh, rehearse a lot. And, the, you know, we were coming in and, and blasting out songs in one take, two, three takes the most. The remixed versions, I'm really curious to hear what you think of these these newly remixed versions that Steve did uh, for this release. I'm really hearing a lot of things I'd never heard before, little details like uh, he added Kurt's voice to the top of Serve the Servants. On Dumb, I noticed that Dumb loses most of the string parts, the cello part uh, under most of Dumb. It comes in at the end, but it's not throughout the, the body of the song. I'm wondering if you saw these remixes as a as a chance to either fix things you weren't happy with or just a chance to sort of reimagine how it could all sound. In utero, with the remixes, just breathes a little more now. It was a little squished sounding, I thought. Well, it's remastered now. The original's remastered. Tell people what that means because that's always complicated for people to understand. They when you re when you remaster something. And it was remastered at Abbey Road in London. And so when you record a record and there's like different levels and frequencies on each individual track. And so when you master a record, you give it some uniformity or it doesn't like blow somebody's speakers. One song's super loud, the next one's super quiet or whatever. It just kind of evens out and you put some uh, EQ on, on things. And so that's what mastering is. But we went... One step beyond that, we remixed the record. And so it was on multi-tracks, and it was not done on a computer. There's no clicking or dragging or Command-V, Command-C, or we weren't on hold with the service uh, people in Mumbai. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it's crashed again. It was all done on tape. And again, that's Steve's way. And it it was all set up in the recording. And so the way those microphones were stationed around the room. And we were listening to each individual track. And so like on Serve the Servants, there was, uh, uh, it was listed on the track sheet, guitar, guitar two. And like, well, we never used this in 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 the mix we did. And so we listened to it. And so on the remix version, there's a different guitar solo. And we, we worked with like the, some vocals that, you know, just kind of freshen it up. And uh, I listened to the Doors. There was a Doors anthology uh, remix, uh, The Future Starts Now, I think it's called, where they remixed the songs. And it was, that's where I got the idea. I go, well, the Doors sound all f- nice and fresh for the 21st century. And, and it's 20 year anniversary of In Utero, so it'd be a good time to try something similar. So did you pr- approach him to do the remixes? Is that absolutely the man? <laughs> we went to the man, Steve. He, Straight to the source. We went to his studio, Electrical Audio in Chicago. He wears a jumpsuit when he works. What color? Blue. Well, it's sort of like a grayish. It looked like maybe it was cobalt at one point, but it faded in the wash. I'm not sure. It was a onesie. He works. He works. In a onesie. It's OSHA. And, uh, the place is OSHA approved. It's super safe environment. Yeah. It's a, a he pool. also serves that kind of coffee that those weird lemurs when they eat the beans and then poop them out and then they and then uh, 
and they're very expensive and you make coffee with them and, they're good too and, that and was good cobalt is like a really happening color now if you like all the new cars have like a some shade of cobalt or yeah. kind of a smoke pelham purple. blue that's a nice blue too that's a nice shade too yeah. he's in, he's into textures steve is into textures so you guys were sitting in on the remixes then you were you were with steve when he did them Absolutely. Well, he wouldn't have it no other way. He wouldn't remix a record without a band there. Yeah. Let's walk through that back. Back in, we're back in Minnesota, and we're in February, and it's it's '93. You'd knock out a, a couple of songs in a in a day. Did you then go ahead and, and try to mix some of those, or was everything just performance, 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 and then we finished the drums in the first maybe three or four days. Then I think maybe after that you, was bass and guitar stuff if you needed to. I maybe changed a few things here and there on the bass. Then it was Kurt, and he did his vocals. And well, Wait a minute, I'm confused about something, because we the... just talked about the fact that the band was in the same room at the same time playing music, and now you're telling me that... So explain that you're telling me that people are doing parts separately. Oh, you do the drums and... Right. So explain. Well, no, now, usually what you do is when you... There's basic tracks, and then there's overdubs. And so a basic, a basic track would be... Chris, Kurt, and I in the same room, and we would lay down the guitar, bass, and drums in one take. And then you'd move on to the next song. So after you've done 13 basic tracks, uh, then you go back and you listen and you think, does this need an extra guitar part? Does this need percussion? Does this need... And then you start overdubbing things. And if there's anything that you need to redo or fix, then you can do that as well. But, you know, recording with Steve, there's minimal overdubbing and there's minimal um like fixes and there's hardly any like percussion or anything on the record it's really a really simple recording so then it was just a matter of kurt going in and and singing all of the songs and putting harmonies on and i don't even know if he had all of his lyrics i remember there were some days where like nothing would happen for hours and we'd just sort of be sitting waiting for something to go down you know there was no auto-tune <laughs> <laughs> there was no auto tune. You know what I remember? No comp tracks. There was this stuff that they used to clean the tape heads in the studio, and it was like pure alcohol and incredibly flammable. And so we started doing things like pouring it on someone's leg and lighting their leg on fire, oh, that's or fun. pouring it on someone's boot. And I poured some on my head. Flaming symbols are so cool. Ooh. <laughs> Ask Gibby. Yeah. Yeah, that so was there not was a OSHA. lot of time spent doing absolutely nothing, too. It, it's interesting to hear you say that on maybe and sometimes you were recording and Kurt hadn't even worked out the lyrics yet because there's some really cool demos in this in this 20th anniversary set, and most of the uh, demo tracks don't have any lyrics with them at all. And I thought we could play a little bit of All Apologies, the demo for that, because it sounds like Kurt's still trying to work out the lyrics on it. Can we just hear a little bit of that?
sounds like they didn't even have his vocal mic on. He was just somewhere in some room or nearby a, 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 an open mic, right? That was, we found that on a cassette, like the multi-tracks vanished. And so that is not even, we couldn't even mix that. Oh, uh, that's why the tape nice. speed's so odd, too. Yeah, it's just kind of, that's what we got. I mean, it's, and so it's the re-release is about, you know, those kind of things, those little, fans really like those little chestnuts like that. I'm Robin Hilton, Bob Boylan, and I will continue our conversation with Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic about Nirvana's In Utero. And you're listening to All Songs Considered from NPR Music. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Are there any surprises that uh, came out for you in the remixing of these songs? Anything that surprised you in any of the tracks? No. <laughs> it was it was all there it was all there it yep. was so like it's so straight ahead it's it's an old-fashioned record in some ways like it was before the internet we made this record before computers again it's it's nice to have it breathe a little bit and uh, so we we just pried it open a little bit and that was the mission and kind of open the windows and kind of freshen it up so you spend like two weeks in Minnesota, you do these recordings, you come home, and uh, everybody seemed pretty happy when they walked out the door, right? I think so. We were out of the woods of Minnesota. Yeah, we were happy to be the hell out of there. Because we were from Washington, western Washington has a mild climate. We're just not used to that those cold temperatures. <laughs> you know what I remember? I remember that there was this sock that Steve had stuffed with mashed potatoes. <laughs> I'm sorry, you said we a were, sock, S-O-C-K? Yeah, there was a sock that Steve had stuffed with mashed potatoes from dinner one night, and it was going back and forth from, I put it under his pillow at night, or then maybe like it would wind up on my drum stool the next day, and then <laughs> it would wind And I got home, when I got home, I opened up my suitcase, and that sock full of mashed potatoes was in there. <laughs> That's a beautiful love <laughs> message, I'd say. You know, he and I really hit it off. <laughs> the winter that was. So, so you you come home. Do you come home with tapes? We came home with cassettes. We came home with cassettes, and uh, 
we had this really raw, intense record, and then the conversation started regarding the obligations of being a number one band on the radio and on the charts. And those conversations and, uh, are with who? With like label label people and the people who are, who deal with those things, those matters. And so we decided we picked the songs like we heard us. We could hear singles on the record for the radio, and then a few months before we we did in utero, REM were in Seattle, and they recorded Automatic for the People, and so I'd go down there and say hi, and you know they'd be wrapping up things and like they'd play me a song like i heard man on the moon right off the press i'm like michael are you going to keep the yeah 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 he's like absolutely i'm like really good and then so we decided that maybe because of our obligations as a professional rock bands and as uh uh unit shifters <laughs> we remixed the songs with scott lit who recorded automatic for the people and other rem work so we had a little more work to do on the record First of all, did you play these cassettes for the label, or did the label get more proper copies to listen I don't, to? I don't remember what they Fine. got. That was before CDs. They probably got a DAT. Right. They got a DAT tape. Uh, yeah, maybe a DAT. Was the reaction um, both from you and from them, hey, we need more singly stuff? Or This well, was not well-received, right? I mean, I wouldn't be wrong to say this wasn't completely well-received. Well, we weren't going to do a song like Milk It be the first single, okay? <laughs> yeah. And... S yeah, and so it was like people have their roles and they're, you know, then again, it, these are, I call them the obligations of being like the number one rock band. And so we we worked our way through it. And part of the solution was working with Scott Litt. Well, how'd Steve feel but, about that? I think he was kind of pissed. I think so. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I would no, think no. so. I mean, yeah. you go in there with this philosophy to do this one thing, and you walk out the door, and then you go in with the people he tried to keep away from you, the, the record label, what, are, what bullet heads are you I think saying, he is. Are you saying we were conflicted? Is that what you're trying to tell us? Yeah. I, I don't know if you've thought about this. <laughs> I've thought about it more than you... I've thought about it a lot. Yeah, no, of course. And, and uh, was that just this tear inside of all of you or did some feel more than others that a the obligation and and or the the, the in some ways you were running from the obligation and the rawness that you walked out the door of albini's place with right well we weren't necessarily running from it but we, you know we were you gotta be rational it's like okay we could make this if, if it's gonna work on the on the record or it's gonna work on the radio you know, we signed the deal, and a lot of bands were like fiercely independent, never even signed on a major label. Well, we were there already, so we don't, you know, weren't really running away from it. It was a solution, and it was a viable one. Mm -hmm. The 20th anniversary presents us with, let's say, a version of All Apologies that was the Albini mix, right? And the, the, the mix that we are also familiar with is not his mix, correct? Correct. And so, could we just play? Because I think in people's minds, they know those. Those vocals, which sound doubled, did they? Is that one of the things that they got done after Albini on All Apologies? He, Kurt sang on top of himself, so to speak. He added some background vocals because I remember I went to his house and he's walking down the stairs and he goes, "Check out these background vocals for um, Heart Shaped Box," and like, "Well, that sounds cool." And so when you you know, I guess we're still working on the record at his house. It just made sense to go in and, and remix it. How about if I play a little bit of the original Albini version of 
would Heart Shape Box be one of the tunes we're talking yes. about? Yeah. Let's and, do it. And let's uh, let's see what that sounds like. What do you all hear is the big difference when you listen to this version? Well, you know, when we were when we were remixing the song at uh, those songs at at Steve Studio Electrical, um, it's been twenty years since we made that album, and I think in that time, uh, Steve has gotten better at what he does. And you know, when we were sitting there listening to the the basic rough tracks. The recordings that we had done, um, you, you just, you know, you you hear a sound that you don't necessarily like hear anymore. You know, when, when a lot of modern recordings just don't hold that same sort of weight that Steve got then and can can still get now. And like, you know, it's a weird thing when you isolate tracks of of something that you recorded a really long time ago. Meaning right. that when you're listening back and the multi-track is playing, he hits a solo button and you just hear that one instrument in isolation from everything else. Yeah, or like a vocal mic that is just, you could just hear someone breathing in the room, you know? Like it's a real, it's a, it's a sonic document of a moment in time and, and you listen to it back and it really brings you back to that place. Like it's one of the funny things about this whole experience of, this re-release and all of this you know nostalgia or retrospect or whatever it is like that time might seem a little blurry but the you remember the feeling of being there you know and it was one of the reasons why steve was the perfect person to make that record because that's kind of what he did like he was not into manipulating moments he was into like capturing them so when when i listen back to this stuff it's like it makes me sort of feel the way I felt then because it's so real, you know? And um, I just think about, I think about us being the kids, like we were kids. It's so crazy that we were going through all of this stuff and these real sort of like formative years. And, and this album was such a 
was a transition for us too. Like I have an emotional reaction to this record. I don't listen to it like I'm listening to, you know, Saturday Night Fever. Like I have, I have kind of a, a more emotional reaction to it because it's really raw and it's really real. So as we were remixing these things, it was even more so. Like wow, well now you can, you know, you can just listen to Kurt's vocal or you can just listen to Chris's bass, and it's like. You know, it, it really sort of breaks th those memories into all of these different pieces that are very uh, defined and specific, you know? I, I remember with, with Heart Shaped Box in the studio on that version you just played, there was a long discussion about the solo. And Steve and Kurt had this idea on the solo to just make it very distorted and kind of out there. And I was against it. I'm like, why are you doing this? And I guess it was about the, I was the sellout in the room or whatever. Like we have, you know, this is a beautiful song. It's an epic song. Like why do you, why do you want to kind of? I remember that. Too. Remember I that? felt the same way. I just didn't say anything. And then it was just like, remember it was like an hour and a half. All these speeches oh, are going down, yeah. and I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Now don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I understand. I completely understand. I would say delete that. Yeah. Mute, exactly. Mute. Delete all. Yeah. It was a. Epic discussion. It's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> you are making a career decision, my friend. Yeah, I mean, you know, like looking, it's it's just at a different time now. You know, well, at twenty four years old, I was wearing shorts with long johns underneath them. You know, what did I know? You know, <laughs> making career decisions, yes. Light, lighting fires on on your pants. I was changing the face of popular fashion with my long johns and high tops. I was a mature twenty eight. I was a twenty eight year old. Yeah, you're the old guy. Yeah, he was the elder statesman the of the elder band. Statesman. Fellas, do it my way or the highway. <laughs> How old was Albania? Was he your peer? I think so. Well, you know, he was one of our heroes, man. Like that was a big deal to be able to make a record with them, like. You know, I had big, big black records, and I, I loved Surfer Rosa. Like to make a record with them was a really big deal. And I admit that when we walked in there, I was terrified and intimidated because his reputation was that of like a really like cynical, opinionated. Like I'd heard stories that bands would send them their single and ask him to do their next record, and he would send, he would smash it and send it back with no letter and stuff like that. Like, oh my God, he's you know. He's like the general Kurtz of the music industry. This is crazy. He's gone too far up the river and he's lost <laughs> it. Man, and, you know, we get there and he's like a pussycat. He's the sweetest person in the world. And we had a blast. He and I got along really well because we're both kind of goofs. But I remember at one point I had taken that tape cleaner and poured it on my on my leg as he was taking a nap on a couch. And I lit my leg on fire and ran in there and woke him up with my leg on fire. And I said, Steve, Steve, there's something wrong in the studio. And we had a laugh and he went back to sleep and I went back in the control room and then I poured some on my hat and I lit my hat on fire and put it on top of my head. And I ran in there with my head on fire. Steve, Steve, there's something wrong. in the And before I could finish saying that, my hair started kind of I could hear my hair burning. There's that bad smell. Sizzling and that smell. So I take my hat off and I stamp it out in the ground. And he's looking at me like, you idiot. And the so horror. I, I, the horror. The horror. And I, I, I nailed it to the wall and put a, a little piece of tape and just wrote dumb on it. And just had a burnt hat that said dumb on the wall. And I came back 15 minutes later and he had changed that piece of tape to say drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, 
were there a lot of drugs and alcohol in the studio? I mean, I'm just beside the alcohol <laughs> no. to clean the. No. What is this behind the music? Come on, guys. There Go to the road. The Go to the road. I, I don't think, I don't remember not even a beer or pot, nothing. I had stopped smoking pot in like 1990. So there I was, was kind nothing. of. Nothing. I was a sober guy. Plus, you know, who's going to, where the hell are you going to get weed in the middle of winter outside of Minneapolis? You know what I mean? <laughs> we weren't making the record at Tough Gong. Uh, no, yeah, I, I, it was, I mean, we were focused. That's the funny thing is you, I think that maybe the reputation that Nirvana has is that we were like three Sid Viciouses. Viciouses? Viciouses. How would that? Vicious. Is that what it is? Vicious. It was kind of a family atmosphere. You know that court... <laughs> It was a family. It was a family atmosphere. So like, Courtney, Courtney came over with Francis, and then Courtney t- wanted to add to the family atmosphere, and then she wanted to bake us a roast. Remember? And we're like, oh no. So I think we unplugged the stove and said it was broken. We're like, oh, the stove doesn't work. Well, you already had the mashed potatoes. Yeah, but it was nice, and it was. Yeah, but those were in my suitcase. Yeah. Uh, I got a note last night. I, I don't know if you know. Do you know the musician Dan Deacon at all, by chance? I, I don't know. He lives in Baltimore. He does electronic, great community-oriented electronic music, big parties around the green skull and his craziness. Anyway, Dan Deacon sent me a note last night. It made me think of what you were talking about, which was that he said, why don't you guys release the stems, the, the original tracks of each of the records, because people can learn so much from what's on those tracks. When digital uh, stuff became uh what everyone uses they people started taking these two inch tapes and um and archiving them digitally so that you know the 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 recording will last forever the tape might disappear but you'll you know you download it into a computer and that will last forever so in doing that all of a sudden on youtube you started getting the isolated tracks like freddie mercury's vocal track from under pressure and it's just his vocal, and, or like Paul McCartney's bass line from Hey Bulldog, and it's just his bass line, and it's amazing, man. Like, it's, I mean, any studio dork like me has spent countless hours listening to like, you know, the bass track from Def Leppard's Hysteria, or something, you know, just, a, just wasting valuable memory space in my brain, listening to these things that you otherwise would never hear. And it's really, really, really cool because you, you hear things that you otherwise might not have ever heard. Like, and it's baseline from Bohemian Rhapsody. I've done it. It's on YouTube for sure, man. There's Nirvana stems. Oh, Killer Queen. Have you ever listened to the drums from that? No. I mean, you listen to it, you're like, oh my god, they, 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 they decided that they were going to keep that. <laughs> you know? It's just raw. It's great. I mean, it's and and one of the great things about it is. You know, one one of the one of the reasons why an album like In Utero still sounds fresh today is because it's the sound of three people. Like it really is. It's there's imperfection and inconsistency. You know, we didn't scrub it up and polish it and clean it up and hand it to you. We recorded it sometimes only once, and then decided that's what you needed to hear because because um, it's 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 real in that way. And I think that. You know, when I hear a song from In Utero on the radio in between maybe other modern popular recordings, it really stands out, you know, because it sounds like us. And the only people that sounded like us were us, you know. That's the way a musician should be. A musician should only sound like 
what they do and you can't no two musicians sound the same it's like an individual feel thing you know and um it's it's one of the greatest things about that record like we totally achieved what i think we wanted to do there was an integrity in our band that we wanted things to be real you know honest and real and that's in utero is entirely that in in, in utero is a testament to the artistic vision of kurt cobain and how it's it's kind of a weird record but it's strangely beautiful at the same time and if you look at kurt's like paintings and his drawings and he even he even did a sculpture for me <laughs> this, little, <laughs> this writhing tortured spirit person it's kind of it's weird you know but it's done well and so that was Kurt's, he had his own, it's like what Dave was saying about having your own sound. And, you know, Kurt was a great songwriter. He knew he had a good ear for a hook, great singer, great guitar player. And, um, you know, in utero is a, a good representation of, of what, what, he liked, what he liked in art and how he expressed himself. That's beautiful. Do you want anything to add to that? I, you know, I feel like that's a good point to let you guys go. I wanted, I did want to ask you about some of these uh, previously unreleased cuts. What can you tell us about the Forgotten Tune demo? Well, Forgotten Tune was, we found it, and like, what is this song? And like, I don't really remember. And so, well, what do you want to call it? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to give it a name because I don't want to like, you know, give it, say something so just let's just call it forgotten tune and let people make up their own minds like what it is but i remember the main riff in that tune it's i think it was from like 1988 or something it was just trying to you know bringing bringing back a bringing back a riff and some of those you know like a, all apologies was from 1990 um dumb was a pre nevermind song penny royalty you and Kurt were getting crazy some night down in that apartment with a cassette, multi-track cassette recorder. <laughs> Penny Royalty came out of that. And so there were new songs, and they were, we were trying to you know, revisit old ideas and, and seeing what we can keep working on them, tune them in. And that new or forgotten tune or whatever just represents that idea. Let's see if we can make something out of this. So let's go out on that. We'll go out on the forgotten tune. And so the 30th anniversary then is going to have the, the stems of all the songs. You promised that, right? <laughs> It'll just be the drums. <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy that. Dave and Chris, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.
On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.